Well, good morning, Sound City. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, I'm glad to see you all. Again, I'm Shane. I'm one of the pastors here for any who uh, I may not have had the chance to meet yet. Uh, And where we find ourselves today is just past the midway point in message five of eight, week five of eight, of our series, Welcome to Sound City. And as most of you know, what we're focusing on in this series is our, our mission, our values, our beliefs, our convictions as a church. And this is a little bit of where we've been so far. So in week one, we talked about the reason for our existence as a church. We talked about our mission. We looked at how all of Scripture over and over and over again finds itself motivated to one end above all else, and that's the glory of God. We looked at how um, we, we saw how he created, God created all of creation and us most specifically to bring glory to him. And we saw how in God's good plan, he created us in such a way that our greatest joy in life would be inextricably linked to our pursuit of lives of worship and praise of him. And then we looked at the question of how, and we highlighted and discussed these four great biblical rhythms for bringing glory to God. And we talked about proclaiming Jesus and receiving his grace and being disciples and making disciples. And so that was all in week one. And then in week two through four of our series, we talked about three different sets of values that ground us and guide us as a church as we go about the work of that mission. So in week two, we talked about values that ground our relationship with God. We talked about our commitment to sound doctrine, recognizing the primary way that God speaks to us is through his sound revealed word, the Bible. We talked about our commitment to being a people of prayer, recognizing that the primary way that we communicate back to God is through prayer. And we talked about our commitment to enjoying God, recognizing that life in Christ doesn't represent some heavy burden, but that a life spent in pursuit of God's glory is fully aligned with our own greatest joy. Then in week three, we talked about the values that ground our relationship with Christians, that ground our relationship with one another, And we talked about our commitment to the priority of relationship and the expectation of intentionality and care that 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 commitment implies. We talked about our commitment to progress, not perfection as a people, and the expectation of the extension of grace to one another that that implies. And we talked about our commitment to being members uh, who are fully equipped for ministry and the expectation of being a covenant family pledged to knowing and developing and deploying the spiritual gifts that God has given each one of us for the accomplishment of his mission and, again, for our joy as well. And then in week four, last week, we talked about values that ground our relationship with the world. We talked about our commitment to every member being a missionary. We talked about our commitment to living out the gospel of the kingdom in all of life. And we talked about our commitment to being both a gathered people and a scattered people. And all three of these values being understood as an expectation that we would increasingly, as a community of faith, uh, be one that lives with gospel intentionality in the world around us, in our homes and in our schools and our neighborhoods and in our workplaces. So that's nine values. These nine values represent principles that the Bible takes really seriously. And so as we start this year, as we start as a new church, we're going to try and take those things pretty seriously too. These are the kinds of things that ought to occupy our hearts and minds as Christians, and they ought to be for us kind of a rule of faith. Do you know that term, rule of faith? A rule of faith is a way of talking about the biblical principles that we're committed to living out. And that's what these values are. They're the ways, the manner in which we want to pursue the mission that God has called us to. 
the church that uh, Stephanie and I used to be a part of in Dallas while I was in seminary, used to speak about their core values like this. Uh, they'd say, we'd rather cease to exist as a church than to compromise on these things. And they'd do that when they talked about their core values. So Sound City, these nine values, they're our rule of faith. They're the things that we'd rather cease to exist than to compromise on. And they're really important to us fulfilling the mission that God has called us to. So that's where we've been so far in our series. One week on our mission, three weeks on our values, and now, starting today, we get to turn the corner and uh, begin the last major section of our series, where we'll be spending three weeks focusing on theology, focusing on our doctrinal statement, our statement of faith. And in these sermons, we'll be focusing, for the most part, uh, to try and limit it a little bit, on the doctrinal commitments and, and distinctives that are most central and most critical to our understanding of three things, who God is, who we are, and how he would have us live. Who God is, who we are, and how he would have us live. In uh, his teaching on matters of doctrine, St. Augustine is said to have taught this principle, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And so with that in mind, uh, there's, while there's hundreds of topics that we could discuss and debate and form conclusions about when it comes to matters of doctrine, uh, with regard to our doctrinal statement, with regard to the, the grounding of us as a church, we want to focus on the major matters and show grace in the minor matters. We want to be firm where the Bible is firm, but yet be flexible where the Bible is flexible. But even with all that disclaimer and preamble and, and focused uh, work that we're, we're going to be doing, my guess is that uh, there's still a few of us out here that uh, maybe would rather go get dental work done than to hear three sermons on doctrine and theology. No? Okay, good, good. I was waiting to see if I heard any amens, and I didn't hear any amens, so that's, that's a good sign, so we'll keep going. Uh, the negative critiques about doctrine and about theology are many. You guys have heard them. Uh, maybe you've even felt them at times. Uh, you hear doctrine divides, some would say. And it certainly can and has at times unnecessarily divided uh, God's people, caused division amongst God's people, but doctrine also clarifies and it marks us as a people who are not simply moral or kind or sincere or generous, but as a uniquely Christian people, set apart by our worldview, by our thinking, by our doing. And additionally, while good theology should never seek intentionally to divide God's people over minor matters, there's a sense in which at times we want our doctrine to divide us, don't we? At times when our doctrine is protecting us from false teaching, protecting us from heresy, there's another negative critique that you often hear about the study of doctrine or theology, that doctrine is dry or that it's irrelevant. And that can certainly be true as well when it's pursued as disconnected from the life of faith, outside of the context of personal relationship with God and apart from the leading of the Holy Spirit. But when rightly pursued, I would argue, I would offer to you that the study of theology is worship in one of its most pure forms, drawing us into uh, a deeper connection with the word of God and with God himself and into a more intentional and more joyful pursuit of life in Christ as well. But over any objections to the study of theology, of doctrine, is the word of God itself. If we just look at a few verses, there are many more we could look at, but if we just start in Titus uh, chapter 1, verse 9, and chapter 2, verse 1, where we see uh, we're compelled as church leaders to give instruction in sound doctrine to the church. So maybe that's a little bit important. In 1 Timothy 4.6, it speaks of being trained in the words of faith and in good doctrine. And in 1 Timothy 4.16, we find this beautiful exhortation to watch your life and doctrine closely. 
And the word doctrine here, using these verses and others like them, what the sense of meaning is for that word, what they're talking about here when Scripture uses that word, they're talking about a collected summary of truth from Scripture used to define and teach a standard of orthodoxy. Orthodoxy being right thinking about God. Let me read it one more time. What doctrine means to talk about in Scripture, when that word is used, it's, it's meant to suggest a collected summary of truth from Scripture used to define and teach a standard of orthodoxy. There's parallel words, too. So it's not just when doctrine is used, it's when these other words as well that that same sense is meant. Words like teaching when it's used in its noun forms, and uh, words like standard and tradition. And in all these cases, it's the very same essence that it's intended in the biblical text, a collected summary of truth from Scripture used to define and teach a standard of orthodoxy. So as we give these next three weeks to digging into our core doctrinal commitments, what I want you to see is that we do so with a clear command and the encouragement of the Bible itself. Let's look at one more verse. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 says, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So just like the Thessalonians that Paul was writing to were given this command to stand firm, to hold fast to the traditions, the body of teaching, the doctrine that's been passed down, originally from the apostles themselves, and then so on down the line, generation after generation, until it finally reaches us. Those that came before us, the way that they often kept watch over their doctrine and held fast to the theological traditions passed down to them by the apostles was by developing these beautiful creeds and catechisms that uh, came about in the early church. And we still have many of those today, and they're very helpful to us. And so as we dig into the establishing of a mission statement and value statements and a doctrinal statement, we're following in that good and biblical tradition. But before we dig in any further uh, to the task of laying out our core doctrines. Let me pray for us. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for gathering these friends together today. I thank you that you've called us together as a family and that you've made us part of your church. I pray, God, that as we dig into your word and as we focus our attention on drawing out of scripture those truths which are most central, most critical, most protective, most beneficial for us, that we would do so faithfully, that you would guide our time together toward that end through the power of your Holy Spirit pray that you'd protect me as I work to share your truth here today, God, and help these friends to hear less of me and more of you as we go. Teach us now, God, exactly what you'd have us learn from this message and change us and grow us as you do. And we pray all of this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So what we'll be looking at in this first part of our little three-part unit on our core doctrines, what we're going to look at today is kind of two meta-doctrines of our doctrine of Scripture and then our doctrine of God. But if I'm fully transparent with you, the doctrine of God really breaks into four separate doctrines of its own, and so we'll actually be trying to cover five doctrines today, and so we've got our work cut out for us for sure. Um, But the good news is, uh, on that front, already in the sermon series, we've spent lots of time, including my sermon last month, talking about the authenticity of the Bible and its reliability. We've talked a lot about the uh, inerrancy of Scripture and its authority for us. And so we're not going to have to spend a ton of time in further discussion about that doctrine of Scripture today, uh, but it might be helpful for me to remind us of our provisional doctrinal statement, what it says about the Bible. And we read it um, last month as well, but I'll read it for us again here. It says this, The Bible is God's word, every word of it completely trustworthy and true. The scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, are the inspired word of God and without error in the original writings and are the complete revelation of his will 
for the salvation of mankind and as the final authority for faith and life. Now, since you're here today, most of you, and since we are Sound City Bible Church, I'm guessing that uh, most of us won't require a lot of convincing of that statement's truth and reliability. But if you are new, if you're one of those guests that that Aaron identified earlier when he was doing the welcome, um, and you have questions about this, please, please let us know. Uh, We're not going to exhaustively treat the doctrine of Scripture too much today, but if you have questions about that, please let us know. We've even had people in the last month or so that have come forward with questions about the Bible, and it's been this really, really sweet time with these folks, uh, just helping them understand it a little bit more, and you've really watched the lights come on um, for someone in particular that I'm thinking of that's come forward with questions like these. So we'd love to talk with you about those things if you have questions about that. But even though most of us probably won't require that kind of follow-up, won't have those kinds of questions, uh, won't need much convincing concerning the doctrine of the Bible, I do think it's important that we talk for a minute about how our doctrine of the Bible is connected to every other doctrine that we uh, care about, that we hold close. And really, the question we're poking at here is, how do we know what we know about God? How do we know what we know about God? Well, because, as we just said, uh, the Bible is completely authoritative for us in life and faith. That's probably a question that we should ask of Scripture. And what we find when we do that is this, that God reveals himself to to mankind in lots of different ways. Two ways primarily, and we're going to talk about those um, now. First, through what's called general revelation, through nature and all that God has created. And there's a passage in Romans that's really helpful to us on this point. Here Paul says, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And so through general revelation, we all come to know enough about God to encourage us to make some kind of a conclusion about the reality of if he exists or not, according to the passage. We also have enough information there to establish our own guilt before him. So that's what general revelation can provide us. But if we were to try and develop a deeper understanding of who God is, for example, or if we were to try and draw any conclusions with any depth about things like salvation by grace through faith or the forgiveness of sins or a hope of reconciliation with God or eternity with Jesus, we fall hopelessly short of all that if we only had general revelation in order to form our tradition of faith, to form our doctrine about those things. But God is good. And he knew that we would need more in order to know him sufficiently so that he could draw us to himself in a saving way. And that's where special revelation comes in. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17 is helpful for us on this. It says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So it takes special revelation, God's revealed word, the Bible, for us to know God in a saving way, and it takes God's special revelation for us then to establish every other biblical doctrine that might be profitable to us, as that passage says. So that in turn, each one of us might eventually become complete and equipped for every good work that God has prepared beforehand for us to do. 
And so with our doctrine of Bible in place, we're almost at that place now where we can turn the corner and spend the rest of our time talking about the doctrine of God. But the point I'm wanting to make with this discussion about how God reveals himself to us is that without a robust theology of the Bible, of the Bible without a robust theology, a, a, a robust doctrine of the Bible, then we'd have nothing to inform and shape the other doctrines that we so quickly take for granted. And we're going to see how easy it is for us to take those for granted as we begin to unpack the doctrine of God, which is now where we'll turn our attention. When I was in seminary, one of my favorite professors was a gentleman named Dr. Bingham. And he's actually the dean of uh, Wheaton College now uh, of their theology department, but he was the head of the theological studies department at Dallas Seminary when I was there. And the first class I ever took with Dr. Bingham was a class called History of Doctrine. It was really, really impactful class for me and for uh, my growth as a fairly young believer at the time. And what Dr. Bingham would do each day when he would walk into the classroom, before he would say hello to us or anything, as soon as his head came through the door, he'd be speaking uh, this statement. He'd say, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you because it determines every other area of your existence. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you because it determines every other area of your existence. And what Dr. Bingham was day after day trying to beat into our heads was that our understanding of God impacts our lives in deeply significant ways. He was teaching us that our doctrine of God is identity-forming, eternity-shaping, and life-altering. He was teaching us that our understanding of God bleeds into every facet of our lives, the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about others, the way we work, the way we love, the way we engage in culture, the way we worship, and every other choice that we make, moment to moment, day after day, for the rest of our lives. It's ultimately governed by our understanding of God, our every word, our every thought, our every deed, our every motive. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you because it determines every other area of your existence. Do you believe that? Because if that's true, then the work that we're going to do, studying doctrine, studying theology over the next few weeks as a foundation for our church is pretty important, I think. So let's get to it then. How, how should we rightly think about God if all that's true? Well, in our statement of faith, what we've done is we've, we're breaking it down into the larger doctrine of God into four related parts. God as Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I'm pretty sure that if we wanted to, we could easily spend like a year of Sundays talking about each one of those things without running out of any material. Um, so we probably shouldn't expect to exhaust any of those ideas today. That's one of my points there. Um, uh, but what we can accomplish today, what we should seek to accomplish today, is framing out a basic orthodox understanding, a right understanding of God in these four areas. And we'll do that for two reasons. First, so that our church would be grounded upon a right understanding of God. And second, so that our lives as disciples of Jesus might also be governed by a right understanding of God. One of the ways that uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem, one of our favorite theologians around here, goes about, <laughs> goes about summarizing the Bible's teachings about the doctrine of God in order to make this really, really big doctrine uh, more accessible to us is he organizes the doctrine around a defense of three summary statements about God. Uh, the first one is God is three distinct persons. The second one is each person is fully God. And the third one is that there is one God. And so for the purposes of the sermon anyway, let's take that basic structure for the structure of our doctrine of God, and we'll unpack each one of those a little bit and see how far we can get. First, God is three distinct persons. Do we believe that? 
Well, let's see what the Bible says. But first, uh, it's probably good for us to say, what do we mean when we say distinct? Well, for starters, we mean that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are not modes of the same person. When Jesus is born of a virgin to Mary, he's not just God the Father in the form of a baby. He's a distinct and separate person in the same way you and the folks you're sitting next to today are distinct and separate persons. When Jesus ascends to heaven and returns to the right hand of the Father, he's, he's not becoming God the Father. He's somehow quite literally seated at the right hand of God the Father, two separate divine persons, separate and distinct together with one another, but distinct. Similarly, when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to indwell each disciple of Jesus, this isn't Jesus just in some ghostly form taking up residence inside each believer. Remember, Jesus is he's hanging out with God the Father right now. He's sitting at his right hand. So the person indwelling each one of us who have trusted Jesus as Savior and submitted our lives to him as Lord, that one that's indwelling each one of us is one who is wholly separate from God the Father and wholly separate from God the Son. There's a lot of verses that make this point really clear for us and that illustrate the fact that God's three distinct persons. So let's take a look at a few of those as well. In 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Peter's opening greeting, he says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. And may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So we see the three persons of God described separately here, right? Each one with different attributes of personhood described, even differing roles are beginning to establish, just even from the one verse. Likewise, in the Apostle Paul's closing benediction at the end of 2 Corinthians, he says this in chapter 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, that's the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. What's really cool, even just looking at two verses that kind of show this, this truth, we already begin to see personalities emerge. With the Father, we see his foreknowledge and his love are emphasized. With the Son, Jesus, his grace to us is emphasized, as is his call for our obedience to him. With the Holy Spirit, fellowship with him and his work in us uh, to sanctify us who belong to God is emphasized. And then there's a ton of other passages that we're not going to have time to go into in any detail today, and I'll make sure and post them when we post the sermon notes this week. But these are sets of verses that show distinction between uh, each pair of the person's of God. So there, we see distinction between God the Father and, and the Son are seen in verses like John 1, 1 and 2, John 17, 24, 1 John 2, 1, Hebrews 7, 25. We see distinction between the Father and the Holy Spirit in verses like John 14, 26 and Romans 8, 27 and many more. We see distinction between the Son and the Holy Spirit in verses like Matthew 28, 19 and in John 16, 7. And we could go on and on. I wish we had time to unpack all those but I'll put them online for us. But even just looking uh, quickly at these selected verses and then listing out a bunch of them that we didn't even really get to look at, we see that there's ample support for our first summary statement in our doctrine of God, that God is three distinct persons. Let's move on to point number two then, which is each person is fully God. First, the Father is fully God. Now, for any of us who have been around the Bible very long at all, this one this one uh, is not a surprise. It doesn't take much to convince us of that, probably. But here's just a few references to try and defend, just to make sure that we can do it uh, from the scriptures, that the Father is God. 
Deuteronomy 32.6 and Malachi 2.10 speak of the Father as the one God who created us. 1 Corinthians 8.6 speaks of one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. Galatians 1.1 speaks of God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. Ephesians 5.20 speaks of giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. It's everywhere in Scripture. The person of the Father is clearly fully God. Second, the Son is fully God. Historically, as many of you probably know, there's been lots of heresies that have developed around this idea that Jesus maybe wasn't God. But the Bible's really, really clear on this. The Son, Jesus, is fully God. In John 20, 28, seeing and touching a resurrected Jesus, Thomas calls Jesus my Lord and my God. In Romans 9, 5, the Apostle Paul speaks of Jesus, the Christ, who is God over all. In Titus 2, 13, Paul speaks of the future appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In 1 John 5.20, the Apostle John writes of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, saying that he is the true God. And in Colossians 2.9, Paul speaks of Jesus, confessing that in him the whole fullness of deity dwells. And we could go on and on here as well. It's everywhere in the scriptures. The person described in the Bible as the Son is fully God. Third, the Holy Spirit is fully God. Historically, the divinity of the Holy Spirit has also been something that's been contested by some. But again, the scriptures are really, really clear on this, that the one called the Holy Spirit is fully God. In Acts 5.4, we see that according to Peter, to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God himself. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11, Paul attributes omniscience, which is the divine attribute of being all-knowing, to the Holy Spirit, saying that the Spirit knows both the thoughts of man and the thoughts of God, and this can only be true of God himself. In 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, Paul twice uses the language of divinity to speak of the Holy Spirit, saying, now the Lord is the Spirit, and then later, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And again, here, we could go on and on. The Bible makes it really clear that the person of the Holy Spirit is fully God. So then, let's summarize our basic doctrine of God, what we've seen so far. We've seen that God is three distinct persons, able to defend that. Uh, We've seen that each person is fully God. I think we're able to successfully defend that. So that just leaves us with our third statement left to cover, and that's the proposition that there is only one God. There is only one God. And understanding this third point is key because without understanding that there is only one God, we become polytheists, not monotheists. We'd be a people who believe in three separate and distinct gods rather than one God. But that's just not what the scriptures say. In Isaiah 45, 5 and 6, God speaks through his prophet saying three times, I am the Lord and there is no other. I am the Lord and there is no other. Again, later in that same chapter, verses 21 and 22 Three times, he says, there is no other God besides me. I am God. There is no other besides me. In James 2.19, James acknowledges that even demons believe that God is one and that they do well to believe this. In 1 Timothy 2.5, the apostle Paul tells Timothy and us by extension that there is one God. And then in Deuteronomy 6.4, we have this really well-known verse, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one And this statement is often referred to as the Shema, which comes from that word here at the beginning of the verse. That's what the Hebrew word for here sounds like. And this is an Israelite, a Jewish creed of sorts. And it was very important, a very important statement of faith in Judaism about the one God that they worship compared to the the many gods that most in uh, the days of the early church were worshiping. 
The Bible's filled with verses like this. In the Old Testament and the New Testament alike, attesting that there is only one God and attesting that he exists as three persons, each one divine, but in unity, sharing a single nature and essence. So there we go. We did it. That's a 50,000 foot, <coughs> excuse me, flyover view of our doctrine of God. But just because we can affirm some facts about God, hold on. Oh, man. Uh, doesn't mean that uh, we can understand how all those pieces fit together. We're not really, we're not quite there yet. And so let's turn our attention there for a few minutes. Since the uh, intellectual enlightenment movement of the 17th and 18th centuries, especially in the Western mindset of most European countries and in the United States, we've been a people who really don't like the idea of mystery very much, maybe especially in our theology and biblical understanding. As post-enlightenment nations, our instinct is often to want to elevate our own intellect over and against the possibility of unknowability. We want our black and white, right? Even in Christian circles, we can tend to elevate speculations and theories that invoke the name of science above what Scripture would say. But if we believe what the Bible teaches and if we understand our place in God's story, that he is perfect and we are not, that he is infinite and we are finite, then we should understand that there might be things that we're just not going to be able to comprehend fully about God this side of eternity. And so with respect to our doctrine of God then, I think we need to allow a little bit more room for mystery and not let that lead us to doubt, but to realize that he's big and we're small, that he's God and we're not. But too often, for, for, for good reasons, with good intentions, I believe, what we've often done with concepts like the Trinity is tried to make them overly simple. We've used simplistic analogies to try and lighten a mental load that's maybe not meant to be lightened in order to understand these very difficult truths. And what's important for us to see is that although these simple analogies that we hear about God and the Trinity, they may seem on a very basic level to be helpful to us, they ultimately fail, every one of them. And many of them, if we take them as truth, can lead us into a faulty view of God at best, or heresy at worst. So let's look at just a couple of these. You guys have heard them. Maybe you've even used them. I probably have in the past. Some have said God is like a tree with three parts, roots, trunk, and branches, and yet they comprise one tree. Others have used the three forms of water analogy, saying water exists in three forms, steam, water, and ice, but all are water. So what's, what's wrong with these analogies? They seem kind of helpful on the surface, but... Let's do this. Let's test them against those three summary statements that we've been using. Uh, God is three distinct persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. Let's see if any of these analogies can pass that test. First, with the tree analogy, we have to just ask this. Is each part of the tree fully distinct, a fully distinct tree of its own, with its own roots, its own trunk, its own branches? Does each root have its own root, trunk, and branches? No. And so this one already doesn't work. What about the water analogy? Let's ask this. Has there ever been a unit of water? Have you ever seen a unit of water that has existed as steam, liquid water, and ice all at the same time? Someone in the last service said yes. I asked them to stay after. I think they were kidding. Um, yeah, so this one doesn't really work either. And in fact, if we take that one at face value as a description for how God functions, then we become guilty of the heresy of modalism where we make God a God that is not three distinct persons, but one God who only exists in one form at a time. It'd be like saying something like this, that in the Old Testament, God was in the shape of the Father. 
and that in the New Testament he's shape-shifted somehow and he's become God the Son, and that uh, then now, as he indwells believers, that he's the Holy Spirit, but that it's all the same single person. And if that were true, which it's not, um, then what would we do with so many facts that we find in Scripture that speak to the contrary? We talked earlier about the fact that, according to Scripture, Jesus is right now sitting at the right hand of God the Father. So is that just wordplay? Is that just, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that don't work if we start to believe that kind of a doctrine about God. Now, it may seem like I'm being too harsh on these little analogies. Someone caught me in between services and I'm like, well, well, what about this one? And I'm like, no, it's kind of the same thing. Um, and so what I'm not saying is that we shouldn't try and understand these more complex doctrines of God that we find in Scripture. I'm not saying that at all. We should prayerfully and worshipfully do all we can to understand his revealing of himself to us in Scripture and to be transformed by the renewing of our mind that comes from that, just like Romans 2 tells us to. But at the same time, we must balance our near addiction to black and white answers with the other realities of Scripture, like in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, which tells us that on this side of eternity, we're only going to see dimly, not fully. That on this side of eternity, we only get to know in part rather than completely concerning the things of God. I was only uh, like three, maybe four years into my faith when I started seminary, and this used to drive me nuts. I was constantly feeling like, hey, I, like, I came here for answers and you guys keep punting to mystery at every chance you get whenever we get to the hard stuff. Uh, I felt like I was kind of getting ripped off, and I, I wanted my black and white. But as my time in seminary went on, and as I matured in my faith a little bit, I slowly found that I was beginning to take some comfort in the mystery of God. I learned that sometimes the precise answer to a doctrinal question rests somewhere in a biblical tension. It rests in the mystery of God. And this is certainly true when we talk about the doctrine of God, and specifically true when we talk about the mystery of the Trinity. But with all that said, all analogies aside, there has been one tool that has actually been really helpful to me in trying to understand, and then even to explain to others, uh, the idea of the Trinity, while keeping mystery uh, in balance with the whole thing. And so I think it'll be up here for you on your screens. And what this diagram does for me is it allows me to test our three statements about God and to see how the three persons of God work together and connect, how they're separate but the same. It allows me to see God as three distinct persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. It allows me to see each divine person as being fully God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And it allows me to see at the same time that there is one God existing as Trinity, and it allows me to do all these things in a way that still leaves room for us to take comfort in the mystery of our infinite God and to hold intention, a pursuit of knowing God more and more with the reality that there are levels of understanding of our God that we just won't be able to get beyond until we go to be with him. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. So I hope that's helpful to you. And we'll post that diagram out there when we post the sermon notes as well. But let me circle back to the beginning where I was offering to you the argument that my professor, Dr. Bingham, had given to me so many years ago, that what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you because it will determine every other area of your existence. So now we're on the other side of our high-level pass at defining a doctrine of God. And my question is, so now as you think about what we've covered, does that, radic does that radically change how you'll live? Is it 
uh, is what we've covered here today now determinant in shaping the, every word you say, your thoughts, your choices, your motives? Is that quote would suggest it should be? Well, I think many of us would want to say yes, but we might struggle to see how. And so what I want to do is uh, take just four areas where our doctrine of God, even just these basics that we've covered today, I want to show us how it makes a huge difference to us in our daily lives, especially in our lives of faith. Number one, if we don't have the Trinity, what happens to our view of creation? If we don't have the Trinity, if we don't have the view of the doctrine of God that we've been espousing here this morning, if we don't have that, what happens to our view of creation? In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, among others, uh, we find that the Father created the world and that he did so through the Son, who he also appointed heir of all things. So we've got the Father and Son involved in creation there. In Genesis 1, 1 and 2, we see not only the Father involved in creating the world and everything in it, but also the Bible speaking of the Spirit of God hovering over the chaos and in participation in the act of creation. And then in Psalm 104, verses 29 and 30, we see that it's when God sends forth his Spirit that creation happens. And so now we've got the Spirit involved in creation as well. Then in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul tells us this, For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is holding creation together still. So now we've got the Father, we've got the Son, we've got the Spirit all involved in the creation of all things that have been created. Are you beginning to see where the dilemma might be here? If any of these three persons aren't God, what happens to creation? Is there some non-God, some non-divine entity out here that's been created by someone else that's now creating the heavens and the earth, that's now creating us? What happens to our view of creation if we lose the doctrine of God that we've just talked about this morning? Number two, what happens to our view of baptism if we don't have the Trinity, if we don't have our doctrine of God that we've just been talking about? Let's look at Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus instructs his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If any of these three persons are not God, then what happens to baptism? Are we being baptized into uh, the name of some wise man named Jesus who wasn't really God? Are we being associated and bound to some spirit through baptism other than God's spirit? That's a pretty scary thought. It's a pretty scary thought. What happens to our view of baptism if we don't have the doctrine of God that we've talked about this morning? Number three, what happens to our view of salvation if we don't have the doctrine of God that you've been hearing today? In John chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, uh, it says, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So what spirit is it that we're being born of if it's not God's spirit? What would it mean if some non-divine spirit had such a role in the salvation of God's people? In John 1, verses 12 and 13, John says, But to all who did receive him, him being Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, here, it's the Father and his will that brings salvation to those who receive Jesus. So what if the Father or the Son aren't God? What would that mean for our salvation? 
In 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul tells Timothy, and by extension us, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So here, salvation is in Jesus Christ the Son. So now we've seen three persons specifically involved in the work of salvation. And if we don't have the Trinity, and if any of these three persons is not God, then what does that mean for our salvation? Are we being saved by some non-divine created being? And is that any salvation at all if that were the case? What happens to our view of salvation if we don't have the doctrine of God that we presented here today? And number four, what happens to our view of prayer if we don't have the doctrine of God that we've been working through today? Hebrews 7.25 says, Jesus lives to make intercession, to pray for us. And 1 Timothy 2.5 says that Jesus is the one and only mediator between God the Father and us. In Jude verse 20, it tells us that when we pray, we pray in the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8.15, uh, we learn that it's only through the Holy Spirit that we're able to cry out, Abba, Father, and have him hear us. In Romans 8.26, we're told it's the Spirit that intercedes for us in prayer. In Ephesians 6.18, Paul says that we're to pray at all times in the Spirit. However, then in Matthew 6, 9, when Jesus is offering instruction on how we should pray, he says, pray then like this, our Father who art in heaven. You see the Trinity there, right? Sound City, let me ask you, as it stands today, when you pray, do your prayers acknowledge the mediating function of Jesus, without whom we would have no access to God? Do your prayers acknowledge the Holy Spirit's interceding role in all of prayer? That same professor, Dr. Bingham, that would start every class with what you think about when you think about God, he's also the guy that taught me, um, helped me to see and realize how regularly we neglect the Trinity in most of our praying, which is so in opposition to what Scripture teaches. Those of you who have heard me pray very much know that a vast majority of the time when I pray, when I close my prayers, when I end my prayers, I say a certain set of words. Extra credit for anyone who knows what those are. Anybody? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Extra credit. Okay. Um, I say, and it's through your Son and by your Spirit that we pray. Amen. And now, that doesn't make me any better of a prayer than you. It's just something that I do to help me remember the nature of the God that I'm praying to. And hear me on this. It's the practical outworking of my doctrine of God. It's the practical outworking of our doctrine of God. And it's, for me, it's, it's, a, it's a way that I try and honor him with my prayers as best I know how to, while still counting on the Holy Spirit to make up the difference. Because that's what the Bible says he, he does. He makes up the difference for us when we don't know how to pray, when we don't know what to pray. And that's good news to me. That's good news to me. But what happens to this view of prayer, this Trinitarian view of prayer, if any of the three persons of God aren't God? Who are we praying to then? Who's interceding for us then? Who's the mediator for us then? Like an angel or something? Like some other created being? That's who's mediating between God and us? It's scary to think about. If we don't have the Trinity, if we don't have the doctrine of God that we've been developing here today, what happens to our views of creation and salvation and baptism and prayer and worship? And the list could go on and on. Well, we're really just scratching the surface in our little three-part unit on the doctrines that ground us as Sound City Bible Church. But what I'm hoping that you're convinced of already is that doctrine matters. 
And then when the Apostle Paul tells Timothy and us that we're to keep a close eye on ourselves and on our doctrine, he's telling us something that is immensely important and deeply practical as well. The study of doctrine and theology is not the study of God. The study of doctrine and theology is not the study of God. The study of doctrine is the study of God for the purpose of living to God. The study of doctrine is the study of God for the purpose of living to God. And this is true because what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you because it will determine every other area of your existence. Well, let's take some time and respond to that idea now. And to all that we've been hearing here today as we're forming a doctrine of scriptures, we're forming a doctrine of God. And as we often do, we'll do that in several different ways. And first, we'll do that through our giving. And so our financial stewards can go ahead and come. That would be great. And we'll begin our response through giving. And when we give around here, just as a reminder to you, we do so with a joyful heart because uh, we're excited about the work that God is doing in and through us. And so we want to shepherd our resources toward that end. And if you're a guest here, please know that there's no expectation that you would participate in that. You're welcome to, but that's not expected in any way. I also want to offer up some questions for us drawn out of the message for us to consider in our community groups this week and also uh, in just times of personal reflection. So let me read those for us and then we'll post them online as well. Number one, discuss with your group what comes to mind for you when you think about doctrine and theology. Discuss the ways the message today changed or affirmed those impressions. Number two, talk about the ways our view of God changes our views on baptism, salvation, creation, and prayer and discuss what part of that teaching most jumped out to you and why. Number three, discuss the three statements that we use to define our basic doctrine of God and try and think of other reasons the truth of these statements matters to your life as a Christian other than prayer and salvation and the ones we mentioned. Number four, look up the words orthodoxy and orthopraxy and then talk about them with your group and talk about what the proper relationship between the two should be Number five, reflect on today's message and then share with your group the most impactful thing you learned from our study and what God is asking you to do about it. Another way that we'll respond this morning is through communion. We're all Christians, including, um, gosh, our hope and prayer would be that maybe even some who came to faith in Jesus today for the first time, where all of us are then welcome to come to the table in remembrance of Jesus' body broken for us and his blood shed for us. We'll also respond through song in worship to Jesus. And so let's do that now. Why don't you go ahead and stand together, and I'll pray, and then we'll respond. Father God, I believe it's true that what we think about when we think about you is one of the very most important things about us. I thank you for the way you've revealed yourself to us as Trinity through your word, and I pray that for each one of us here today, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would grow in us a, a deep and fuller understanding of who you really are, and that you'd make it really, really clear to us the difference that you'd have all that make in our daily lives. I pray you'd give us a deeper love for you and for your word as a result of what you've taught us here today, and that we leave this place impacted, changed, living differently as a result. We do love you, God, and we pray all these things through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.